Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Boo Radley's Toys, Books, and Gifts for the Quirky-Minded, and Atticus, the coffee shop and gift store for the grown-up lurking within, both on Howard, across from the carousel, in downtown Spokane. Welcome to the Thursday Arts Preview, where the P is parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. Do you like the films of Wes Anderson? If so, then you might like the version of The Nutcracker that's coming to the First Interstate Center next week, because Wes Anderson's go-to art director helped design it. We'll hear more about that later on when we talk to Akiva Talmi, executive producer of Nutcracker Magical Christmas Ballet. This week, we're starting by talking to Idaho-based writer Alexandra Teague. Her new book is titled Spinning Teacups, a Mythical American Memoir. And in it, she reflects on her family and the grief and dysfunction that can perpetuate across generations. In the book's layered essays, she shares deeply personal stories about her family members and herself that also become an exercise in historical research and self-discovery. When I talked to Alexandra in our studio recently, I asked her if spinning teacups was in some way about crossing the threshold between innocence and experience. Certainly, I think innocence and experience plays a role, and also the question of fantasy and escapism and what role that played in my family. When things got really hard, we would drive 17 hours from Arkansas to Disney World in Florida Uh, We didn't particularly have the extra money to do that, but it was this fantastical world that we could escape to and was very much both much more consumer culture than my family generally was, but very much of a piece with my family's broader love of theater and stories and things that were kind of fantastical and imaginative. And so I think about that a lot in relation to other threads in American culture of people wanting to not face reality necessarily, and the ways in which that can be very beautiful and imaginative and can also be potentially dangerous uh, because it can be avoiding deeper, darker things that are going on. So yes, I think definitely that all ties to innocence and experience as well. And rather than have me summarize some of these things, what exactly was your family escaping? Oh, my family was escaping grief generational trauma. My grandfather had been killed in a freak ammunition ship explosion in my mother's childhood. She never got over that death. I grew up, she had me when she was 39. And so I grew up in the late 1970s and 80s with this sense of my grandfather's death being like something that had happened yesterday. So for somebody of my generation, I have this sort of strangely deep connection to the World War II period because of what had happened to her. And she had her own mental health challenges and depression, uh, perhaps bipolar. There were other issues in the family uh, with mental health. And then there were issues of abuse, particularly in my first relationship. There was a mental health and domestic abuse situation that uh, we did fun, imaginative things and didn't talk about. (laughs) (laughs) And in terms of just structure, you chose to not begin with your grandfather's death. Uh, And this was in 1944, if I'm not mistaken. But you brought that in at the end. And so there are these breadcrumbs that are dropped, for example, the clawfoot bathtub. 
And by introducing it very early on, we then understand the references that come later. And yet this key event in your family's life, which is your grandfather's death, um, it comes at the end. Can I ask what your rationale for bringing that in at the end rather than kind of front-loading it was? That was actually – that's such a good question. That was something that happened in later edits because I originally – the essay that is at the very end of the book, The Panharmonicon, was the first one that I wrote and I originally imagined it was a sort of preface and then I imagined the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The essay about my grandfather's death would be second or third and it was in that position for quite a while and I ended up thinking that – the story of my grandfather's death and the impact on it, even though, I mean, I begin the deadest of all the dead people and my family was my mother's father. And so even though that is kind of the initial traumatic um, incident of grief that carries through the family that I knew, um, I felt as though for the reader understanding that in the context of all of these other things that were happening more in the present tense with the family and having a better sense of me as a person was important for that story to have the kind of impact that it had in my life. And even though this is a catalyzing event in many senses, this uh, appears at the end and we instead begin with your mother and her clairvoyance or putative yes. clair clairvoyance. <laughs> um, can you talk about that and again why you chose this as the entry point to Spinning Teacups? I chose that because I thought that whether or not everybody has a mother who claimed to be psychic or was psychic. I felt as though the question of whether or not we can see something about the future and whether or not those claims are true is something that many people can relate to and have wrestled with in their life. And I mean, I open with the line, sometimes my mother saw visions, and I felt as though that gave a sense of the environment that I grew up in it sets the scene for the sense that both what is real and visible is at play, but that there are a lot of other things that are imaginative and invisible that are also having equal force within the family. Because things that my mother would claim to know uh, were taken as fact in my family. So a lot of the book is wrestling with kind of like where are the boundaries between what is real and not – and in our family, I didn't really come to realize or be able to articulate until I wrote that essay how much power this gave my mother in the family that she you know, could kind of, as I say, see through time and space and would always know what all of us were doing or at least claim to know, sometimes retroactively. And then we also explore many other areas which have a similar thread, and mental health certainly emerges as one of them. You'd mentioned bipolar disorder. Um, and this is Drew for example, who was your first love, and then bipolar disorder or being diagnosed as bipolar also emerges later with Gabriel. Um, was it the similarity of these that prompted you to write Spinning Teacups? It was really Gabriel's death. So my youngest nephew, Gabriel, who would have been 26 in 2015, um, killed himself shortly before his 26th birthday. And he had been struggling with what was probably bipolar disorder, um, although there was never a super clear diagnosis for several years before that. And in the years that he was struggling with that, I definitely um, made the parallels with Drew, who, like you said, was my first serious relationship. And, um, and Drew and I have stayed in touch. And so I reached out to him for advice about Gabriel during that time. But I was not planning on writing essays 
at all, really. I've always loved reading essays, and that used to be my escapist kind of reading because it was the genre that I didn't write in, and so I would read collections of essays and other sorts of nonfiction. But after Gabriel's death, I was grieving him so much and seeing the effects on our whole family and starting to reflect more on what we had not talked about directly in the family and these threads of mental illness that might have been present that we weren't facing. And I started to touch on some of that in my poetry and I was just not able to go as far with it as I felt like I needed to. There was more that I wanted to say. So I ended up kind of surprising myself by writing the essay that the Panharmonica that became the final essay in the collection. Um, and then right after I wrote it, I've never had this happen with another book project, but I knew the themes of another seven or so essays. I had the ideas for a lot of these um, and realized that I did want to write about the time that, you know, the years that I was withdrew and that I wanted to write about my own struggles with depression and um and my grandfather's death, I'm making this all sound like it's incredibly dark. There are many moments of light and even, you know, humor throughout this as well, because, I mean, that's one of the ways that my family also coped was with a really great sort of sense of gallows humor and being able to see the comedy in the midst of what was hard and everything as well. And you have the book in your hand and you imagine a reader taking it all in. What are some things that you hope the reader takes away from this? I hope that it gives other people permission to tell their stories and talk maybe more openly about what has not been discussed in their families. I gave a reading in Pullman the other day, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, all families keep so many secrets, and why do you think that is, and why do are we self-protecting, or what is, you know, and somebody else told me that he just flipped at random to one of the essays, and um, a Native man who grew up in a very different family from mine, but who said, I just opened to this page, and I was like, oh, this is my family, you know, like, it's not, and it also is, so I'm hoping that people will find connections and be able to hopefully ask questions about their own lives that feel meaningful. Um, James Baldwin says that the purpose of art is to lay bare the questions that have been hidden by the answers. And I love that idea of getting to better questions about our lives. So I'm hoping that this can help readers recognize parts of yourself or your experience in them. Yeah, and find the universals there. Yeah. Well, Alexandra, thank you so much for coming in today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and careful reading of the book. That was author Alexandra Teague talking about her new book titled Spinning Teacups, a mythical American memoir. You can find more information about Alexandra and her work at alexandrateague.com. And in the coming days, we'll post a longer version of this interview on the Thursday Arts Preview podcast, as well as on our website at spokanepublicradio.org. Coming up this weekend, the Tannehill Weavers are in Spokane Valley for the first time in years, and it's also the last official stop on their current U.S. tour. The band has been performing for well over half a century and is considered one of the leading proponents of Scottish traditional music. During an earlier stop on their tour, I spoke by phone with their longtime vocalist and guitarist Roy Gullen about their upcoming concert and their newest members but we started by discussing how Celtic music, with its centuries-old roots, succeeds in staying so contemporary. Well, I, I expect it's, it's not really that much different from the enduring appeal of older songs, say, from the 1920s, the 1930s, 40s, 50s, etc. They're still played and enjoyed to this day. It's the same kind of phenomenon. 
if something's pleasant to listen to, people will keep listening to it, and and it, it moves me. Uh, it's, I love listening to it. I love singing it. I love performing it. You know, it, it's like the soul of your country is in there. The DNA of your your whole country is in that original music. Unfortunately, we seem to be entering an era of like fast food only with music. It's it's meant for instant consumption, and you just toss it away. I haven't really heard much written recently that will stand the test of time, I'm afraid. And talking about standing the test of time, the Tannehill Weavers have existed since 1968, and so you are kind of the rolling stones of Celtic music, and if, you, if you'll pardon the parallels, you know, you're the Mick Jagger and Phil is the Keith Richards. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've been doing this for a while. With that, there are certain expectations that people, you know, when they hear you, they expect that certain consistencies. Um, how do you manage to keep things fresh, but also continue delivering a lot of what people expect from, you know, your long, long legacy as musicians? Well, the, the original enthusiasms never really died, so I suppose that's what keeps it to a certain extent fresh. But yeah, it's just the, the enjoyment of playing and the, the, the things has is, is never kind of really waned even on a bad day. And even though you are the premier proponent of Scottish Celtic music, you know, you're not going, you're not doing arena tours or anything. You're still, I was looking at your itinerary, and you're doing a lot of smaller venues that seems to me very much in keeping with the whole ethos of the style of music that you play. Um, you know, I'm assuming that's intentional, where you're really going to these these venues that allow you to kind of connect with the audience and and really get the heart of the music across. Yeah, there's no point in playing anywhere if you can't connect with the audience. Basically, we go where we're told to go, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it doesn't matter a jot to us whether it's a, a, a big concert hall or a, a little club. I mean, it's just back to the enthusiasm of playing the music that remains the same. And in any case, there was no reason to, to leave, no matter how successful it ever got, you know, there's no reason to leave the smaller places behind because that's that's where it all started. And, you know, we owe them something to give something back to these smaller venues. And you and Phil have been with the band, you know, really since its inception. And then you have newer members like Malcolm and Ian who have come on just recently, you know, in the, in the last couple of years. Can you talk about what Malcolm and Ian have brought to the band? Oh, without a doubt, they've given us a whole new lease of life. You know, the, the people they replaced were, well, like Phil and myself, getting on in years. <laughs> and if, if anyone getting a wee bit jaded with the road, perhaps, or <laughs> something, you know, and... and the new guys come along and they they just oh boy this is exciting well, let's get on with this you know they love you know the tours and the the, the travelling doesn't phase them that much and and it kind of rubs off and Phil and I they've knocked years off us yeah and I was looking at Ian CV and if he's one and the same is he the youngest clan leader ever to be appointed I mean he's got a really incredible both musical and yeah filial pedigree right yeah apparently he's the youngest clan chief ever. So how is his style of Highland bagpipe playing maybe different than some other players that you've worked with in the past? Uh, Ian's kind of stepped into kind of one thing that all the Tannehill pipers have all had in common was that they're pretty fiery with their playing. But he, he can also do some very gentle things, which they all could, uh, but we just haven't featured them so much as we have in this tour. We've, we're actually featuring the gentler side of bagpipes in this tour a little bit. 
And you had your 50th anniversary album with a different set of players back in 2018. And, you know, forgive me on the pronunciation, is it Orach? Yeah, that's close enough. Okay. <laughs> I can't pronounce that either. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, you had that which encapsulated the past half century. And if I'm not mistaken, you're working on some new material now with the current set of players? Yeah, oh, we've got a few things that are kind of half in the can. And, uh, yeah, we, when we've got time, we go into the studio and mess around, see what we can uh, arrange. And uh, it's an ongoing process, but hopefully we're going to get something out next year. Um, so it's still a little too early to give some teasers on that forthcoming album. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Afraid so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're actually working on two albums simultaneously. We're going to do a regular album, Tannehill Weaver's album, and we'll, we'll do the holiday thing. But we're getting, you know, slowly but surely getting things done for both the albums. And, you know, we've talked about the consistency that the audience expects of you as a band, but as you go out on the road and you have this kind of relentless touring schedule where it's kind of back to back to back, what changes are you noticing in the audience, if any? Like, is there a newfound appreciation for what you're putting out? Well, we're starting to get more generations involved. Our original audiences are now bringing their grandchildren with them. <laughs> so you, you very often get three generations of the same family coming to the shows now, whereas when we came over at first, it was just one generation. And you've got this concert coming up in Spokane Valley in just a few days' time. Can you give us a, a preview of the set list? Is it going to cover your entire discography, or is it going to feature more recent albums and then some, some of these new works we've been talking about? Yes. <laughs> yes is a short answer uh, we'll be doing stuff from early albums we'll be doing stuff from the most recent album and you know a few things from everything in between excellent well Roy I want to thank you so much for taking the time out and yeah talking about this uh, the tour and the band not a problem I'll get back to my ironing now <laughs> <laughs> Roy Gullen there, a founding member of Scotland's renowned Tannehill Weavers. Thanks to sponsorship from the St. Andrews Society, Angus Scott Pipe Band, Spokane Folklore Society, and Opportunity Presbyterian Church, the Tannehills will play Opportunity Presbyterian Church in Spokane Valley on Sunday, November 19th. You can find out more about the band at tannehillweavers.com, and venue information can be found at opportunitypresbyterian.org. And though we haven't quite made it to Thanksgiving, holiday productions are already starting to hit local stages. Next week, the international production Nutcracker, Magical Christmas Ballet, comes to the First Interstate Center for the Arts in Spokane. And when I say international, I mean international in both its creation and its narrative. Akiva Talmi, the ballet's executive producer, joined me by phone recently to talk about how this Nutcracker showcases the talent of artists, designers, and choreographers from more than a dozen cities around the world. It even features sets from the Hollywood designer known for his work on Wes Anderson films. And as Akiva explained to me, this unique nutcracker is the culmination of more than 30 years of effort. In 1992, I went to Moscow just as the revolution happened when communism fell, and I engaged a star from the Bolshoi Theater by the name of Vlasov, 
to create a new independent company. And um, I think we were one of the first independent companies that kids were willing to take a chance, will democracy survive? Vlasov, he moved the story from Germany to the Slavic land. And uh, we developed the concept through the years with an aesthetic theory called concrete visualization, which means uh, that you show visually, really for young audiences, the content of the ballet, and it becomes less abstract. Jumping 31 years later, as the war started, we are now Nutcracker Magical Christmas, and um, we recruited dancers from Ukraine primarily, uh, who come from the same traditional dance. And uh, we brought in artists from 16 ballet capitals around the world. Tokyo, Kyoto, Osaka, uh, Milan, Rome, Napoli, Kharkov, uh, Odessa, Denis Petrovsk, Lvov, and so on. The power of the company is fantastic. It is sparkling with talent and energy. So what we will have in Spokane will be, uh, in my 31 years of doing this, the best that we have done. I was just curious about what each of these 16 ballet capitals are contributing. Are they each contributing a very discreet and bespoke element to the production? Yes, yes. So we engaged a puppet maker from uh, Prague, Czechoslovakia, and he built unique marionettes from South Africa. We engaged a uh, exotic bird sculptor, and he made um, doves of peace, many, many colorful birds of authentic names, spectacular, something like 12 feet wide wingspan. Those additions are unique to this production and make it um, very, very, very special. It's really very, very interesting. Uh, new costumes were created for the different nationalities that are represented, and um, we call it Nutcracker in the land of peace and harmony. So we're a little bit utopian, and um, Masha or Clara meets the prince and goes to the land of peace. So in the land of peace, she meets these exotic birds from the five corners of the world. And we've talked about birds in the form of the dove apiece, as well as the exotic birds that come in in Act Two. But there are also large, really large animal puppets, the the bull, the bear, the elephant, right. the unicorn, and the firebird. You know, what do these represent? And just can you talk about some of the, the technical challenges behind this puppetry? I am, they call me Geppetto because I keep putting in puppets. <laughs> <laughs> the dancers say... They just want to dance, you know. <laughs> so um, when um, Clara Masha travels around the world in seeking peace, there are five countries or five continents, shall we say. And she, in each one, she discovers this huge, I think, 10 feet tall um, sculptured with a dancer inside that she discovered as a, a representative of the country that she goes to. And like the Wizard of Oz, she keeps going from country to country until she finds the land of peace. So the the big animals represent the countries that she travels through the world. In the original and in Russian traditional dance, usually there's a prince and a princess. They sit on a crown and there's exhibitional dances for them. And there are little performances in front of you. So what we changed is that instead of a performance in a palace, 
she travels. She sees the same dance, exotic dances from different countries, but as she's hovering around the world, we gave her a purpose. And um, Carl Sprague, who is uh, one of the American contributors to this, I wondered if you could talk about his contribution specifically, because I think he's worked with Wes Anderson. Is that right? He's the lead designer for all of Wes Anderson's movies, and he's a 40-year Hollywood veteran, and he created the new, really the new look for the production in his ability to create a very majestic, very rich uh, looking uh, in the party, in the banquet. So it's in a palace banquet. And he created then, of course, the, the land of peace, which is the piece de resistance with all these waterfalls and birds and animals floating around as if it's like the Amazon. Turns out in Spokane, the theater is one of the best. You will actually <laughs> get to see the, the, really the majesty of his work. He's a very accomplished, um, deep artist. And we've talked a lot about the innovations that this production brings and the ways that it departs from the, say, traditional Nutcracker. But are there familiar touchstones? Are there things that people will recognize from the Nutcracker performances that they might have seen before? It retains all the roots, but it's expanded. See, we enriched it, but it's the classical story. So... For example, we added the overture with choreography. So the scene is very rich in that a hurdy-gurdy and you know, a music box, they're arriving during the overture, and they're meeting Drosselmeyer before the party, and he brings gifts. And So the overture is choreographed. It's not that it's changed. It's that the story is richer, longer. The party is the same, except what we added, instead of pantomime, there's of very rich choreography of what happens during the party. So during the party, what's new is, uh, so the party is the same music, just richer in, in what happens in the party. That's where we have the marionettes from Czechoslovakia, and we have the, the dove that appears, the gifts are the same. And uh, we incorporated a very nice um, section for youth dancing that, you know, we have partnered with uh, youth dancers in Spokane, and they wear these elaborate costumes that we made in, uh, in St. Petersburg. So the party is richer because the youth and the professional dancers are able to dance together. And then Act 2 is when um, the dove dances and takes us to the land of peace, and now come uh, the transition into the five variations, the five nations around the world, the continents, and then the same dance the Grand Paradeo, the, the big love duet, is, is traditional, four parts, adagio, variation, variation, and then the coda. After that, the same dance, just more elaborate, which is the Waltz of the Flowers. And that's just a celebratory ending to uh, the story. Well, Akiva, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to talk about all the detail that's in this, uh, this production. I mean, it sounds like a, a really interesting and exciting take on The Nutcracker. Thank you, too. Uh, we're privileged to have the opportunity to speak to the community through NPR in Spokane.
That was Akiva Talmi, executive producer of the Nutcracker Magical Christmas Ballet. The ballet, which emphasizes a theme of peace, comes to the First Interstate Center for the Arts on Tuesday, November 21st, and showcases the talent of top artists from around the world. More information about this production is available at nutcracker.com, and you can purchase tickets or find showtimes at firstinterstatecenter.org. This has been the Thursday Arts Preview, a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the art scene throughout the Inland Northwest. Each week on Spokane Public Radio, the Thursday Arts Preview offers us an opportunity to revisit fun and interesting interviews, music, and performances you might have missed when they first aired. It's also a space where we look ahead to upcoming events or activities that you won't want to miss. If you'd like to listen again or catch future episodes as soon as they air, Subscribe to the Thursday Arts Preview podcast on major platforms like Spotify and Google and Apple Podcasts. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm E.J. Ionelli. Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Boo Radley's, toys, books, and gifts for the quirky-minded, and Atticus, the coffee shop and gift store for the grown-up lurking within both on Howard, across from the carousel, in downtown Spokane.